Welcome back to Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson stories. I'm Christopher Tidmore coming to you from Historic Magazine Street, New Orleans, one of Hunter's favorite places. And our host, Curtis Robinson, is coming to a place a little closer to Hunter's home of birth, North Carolina. How are you doing today, Curtis? I am uh, doing well. It's good to good to hear your voice, literally, given uh, uh, the tech problems. But uh, here we go, right? Here we go. Here we go. Now, we, of course, been covering Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972. And I thought it was kind of apropos, the conversations we're having, since it was about this point in 1972 that one Richard Nixon helped create and midwife the creation of Amtrak, which darn near pretty much stopped running in most of the country outside of the Acela Corridor because of a train strike, another thing that Richard Nixon would have known well. So it seems like history is coming back to us to haunt us in the 50th anniversary of the show. Yeah, yeah. I remember our challenge was that given that that Campaign Trail 72 was a presidential campaign year and we wanted to do it 50 years later i have to say that that the wallace part earlier on was remains my favorites and and particularly in the history repeating itself phase but now now we're doing september and i wouldn't say it's so much deja vu it's just getting a little bit weird i mean first off august all right for people who remember the book as we go the, the book is organized by months, and September is the month that begins with the wonderful quote from Sitting Bull, and then it ends with uh, another quote. Well, one of the quotes that always gets pulled is the, if you go to Hunter Thompson quotes, it's about we're just a nation of used car salesmen with enough guns to shoot anyone we don't like. <laughs> That's not... That, that's not the exact quote. Yeah, we're close. Yeah. But that that is in here. So it's also the some of the other comments about, um, you know, that uh, McGovern is better every day than Nixon will ever be, and it, it, a lot of a lot of the stuff that people would remember are from this. But the, the one of the weird things about September is that August ends with a strange picture drawing illustration of. Nixon and some others, and the, and the caption on it, of course, is 50 years ago. And, and that seems ominous, <laughs> but it's 50 years later. And then um, it, it's really interesting. It's also the part of the book. It's also the part, a part of the campaign where, and this may be perilous, where that you know you're, you know it's awful. Your polls are showing you 20 points down. You, you do not close a 20-point gap on a seated president in two months. To use a sports analogy, you're at that part of the season where you're not mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. <laughs> you're just not going to make the playoffs. But because you're not, you know, any fan knows that if you're not mathematically eliminated, you're like, look, if we win every game from now on, the front runner loses every game, and there is at least one plane crash that takes a team out, we could be on the cuff. And, you know, the crazy scenarios, and I say this because a lot of my friends are Philadelphia fans, so they're, they can create scenarios that are really outlandish. So <laughs> I say that to say you, you see a parallel of I just had a, you, you have conversations with some some diehard Democrats that will explain carefully how the, the Democrats are going to hold the House what are we now? Fifty days out, fifty-one. You know, a couple months from now, and it's just—it's hard to see. It's hard to see, and you and you and I have discussed this on my radio show, and I know we will do some more for those that ever want to try it. It's called thefoundershow.com, but. 
the fact of the matter is everybody's looking at polls that said, well, even the Senate is going to be safely in Democratic hands. The funny thing is those polls resemble a lot of what happened in 2016 and uh, 2020, and they're starting to shift back. If you're looking at this, you're looking at a situation where every time it seems like the Democrats are going to surge, it kind of snaps back to reality. And that's very much what September and the McGovern campaign looked. There was a young organizer in Texas. His name was Bill Clinton. He was going around telling people how McGovern was going to do well in the South, and he was pulling on everything around in the month of September, only to find out basically somebody laughed at him. They were right, and he was wrong, and he's going to reminisce about that in years to come. Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard to know. What I find fascinating as a as a student of politics is we saw the first wave of Trump influence in the primaries, and you could argue it other ways, but he was pretty strong. The Trump, the Trump era, even the the people who agree with Trump on the election did well. Mm-hmm. They got nominations. Now we get to see if they can now carry a general election. And I am fascinated to find out if that's true because my you know, my theory has long been that primaries have always been about voting for someone and general elections have always been about who are you going to go vote against. But but another phenomenon that goes back to Tea Party times is that the general election is becoming more and more like the primaries used to be in, mm-hmm. in, in this respect, which is you know, it used to be you start with 40, the other side starts with 40, and the 20 in between. I mean, remember Mitt Romney said, oh, you do what you've got to do in the primaries, then you etch a sketch and start over. But and that, and that is the election if you've got 40 and I've got 40. But, what, but what, what if one side has 45 and the other side has 45 or 47, and now you're down to like three guys in central Ohio, you know, or no, Ohio's not a swing state. I mean, three, <laughs> three guys in Pennsylvania and Harrisburg yeah. decide, actually there was a movie, there was a movie called swing, a bad movie called swing vote that uh, was about, it, it finally came down to one guy and, and, and this guy's the guy, right? Yeah. So it, it, it has that. And when you, when you contrast it to what Hunter was writing about in 72, there's an entire part where he apologizes. He's, he admits that he lost his objectivity because, you know, he thinks the the popular vote will be like five or six percent. It turns out to be twenty three, <laughs> and but he does speculate. He said well, we got to deal with the fact that Nixon may win every state, and he won every uh, all but one state. What is it? it was one state. It was Massachusetts. I remember the bumpers. We've talked. Yeah. The bumper stickers. Massachusetts. Yeah. America's conscience. What I found interesting about the way Hunter's writing this as objectivity is I kept thinking back to what Hunter's thinking at the time, which is four years before, when frankly, the Nixon Humphrey race in September is a nail biter. And it remains that way until the election, really to a couple of weeks before when it looks like the, the South is going to undergo negotiations uh, over, you know, uh, over South Vietnam. I'm, I'm thinking of this. If Hunter, Hunter's approaching this coming into September thinking, what if this is truly a nail biter again in a truly divided country, which we were in 68? We just weren't there in 72. It was we'd gone in, in a different direction. But it was a very close race. Yeah, you can't you can't argue you can't argue that that, that a country that that agrees on its leader, forty nine out of fifty states, yeah. with a twenty three percent popular vote, win. The last 
political thing this country was really, really united and sure about was Richard Nixon's second term, and that should scare the hell out of us. It really was. And, I mean, even Reagan was never going to get as good as Nixon does. He's going to come close in the 49 states. But the fact of the matter is the country had shifted faster than most political reporters could understand. And the Democratic Party itself was undergoing a major shift in its politics. And this was the future. But at the time, it just looked like crazies had taken over the asylum, you know, and that was something that middle America would not tolerate. The happy warrior of Hubert Humphrey becomes, and it's a tragic thing because I not only knew George McGovern pretty decently, I was a student. I was, he was a history professor of mine and he was anything but a wild eyed hippie. He was a bomber pilot in the war. He was, he was everything but that. But by September of 1972, that's how the country is seeing him. Oh yeah, yeah, and, it, and it, it's boy, it's a lesson in control your narrative, isn't it? Yeah, tell and me about uh, it. for those wondering about the sitting bull quote, and I'll put this out to Judy Clancy, one of our producers, because she's like right now trying to rummage through some box to find it. And I'll, I'll save everyone the problem if, if if you'll indulge me a moment because it is so good. This is from Sitting Bull speaking at the Powder River Conference in 1877, and this is how Hunter begins uh, September. Hear me, people. We have now to deal with another race, small and feeble, when our fathers met them, but now great and overbearing. Strangely enough, they have a mind to, to till the soil, and the love of possession is a disease with them. These people have made many rules that the rich may break, but the poor may not. They take their tithes from the poor and weak to support the rich and those who rule. And then he says, of course, if George McGovern had a speechwriter half as eloquent as Sitting Bull, he would be home free today instead of 22 <laughs> points behind <laughs> and racing around the country with both feet in his mouth. By the way, That's if, a good lead. if anybody wants to f get into the mindset of Sitting Bull as politician, I, hi I highly recommend George McGovern's best friend, Stephen Ambrose's book on Sitting Bull, which explains a lot about Sitting Bull as sort of the count, the, why he's the last Indian leader, because he is not just a brilliant war leader, he's a brilliant politician and, so, and speech maker. So. But uh, I, I think about this, I've asked McGovern, I asked McGovern a couple times, about what he was feeling, and he said, we kind of knew we weren't going to win, but we didn't have any idea it was going to be quite as much. We, were, we knew we were standing up for something that was unpopular, and the timing wasn't getting to us. But at the same time, in September, they had no idea that it was going to be the kind of landslide. No one had any idea. The polls didn't seem to reveal that. Nothing did. Do you know what's interesting to me in you know, 50 years looking back is that no one thought Watergate was going to blow up, you know, uh, yeah. no, no one thought there was going to be an October surprise or anything uh, uh, weird was, was going to happen. And I'm not so sure now, even if you had a 20 some point lead in September, you wouldn't be thinking like, you know, even now someone's Googling my grade school teachers <laughs> comments or something. You would, you would just always live in fear, but, but there's no way, particularly in 72, it's no way to see how you, how you come back from that and and begin to 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 blow it up and and it's interesting the way the way the book you know Hunter starts this he's actually in Colorado then he comes by and he make he makes a big deal 
sort of a, a symbolic deal out of the fact that McGovern changed from a sort of a funky hippie headquarters to um, to a big multi-story headquarters on K Street in Washington, and he sort of draws parallels with that. That that sort of something of the soul has gone out of the campaign at that point, and that that's that's a good indication of that. So I'm curious at this point. So Gary Hart's running. McGovern's campaign, and obviously Gary Hart's going to be somebody who's going to be very close to Hunter in later years, if not already at this point. And I, I've often wondered about that transfer. Uh, the, the accounts I've read about the the campaign, the McGovern campaign at that point, it kind of is basically Gary Hart's kind of he's still campaign manager, but he's kind of pushed out of day to day management. The sort of rebellion that was going on it, it is is taken over by the campaign professionals. And that seems to be the beginning of the kiss of death. It is. It is. You wonder, you wonder about other campaigns. I mean, they, I've not been close to a lot of campaigns, but I, I, I've been fairly close to like, you, you look at what happened to John McCain, who ran a very McCain-like campaign right up until the day he didn't. And they came in and I I had a conversation with Bob Dole after, after he had lost and he had given a speech that was smart, funny. And I told him afterwards, I said, well, you know, well, you know, Senator, I, di- I didn't vote for you, but I would have voted for that Bob Dole. And he said, yeah, well, that Bob Dole knows who he is. And it was interesting. It was um, – and he, he, op- he immediately just said, you know, it gets so damned important. It gets to be all these people are around you. Everyone's in your ear. You, you just don't want to make any mistakes. You don't want to let your donors down. And I'm like, well, you see, that that was his problem. I think I think to be president of the United States, that you've got to have a little tiny bit of sociopath. You have to be there's got to be something wrong with you, right? Well, there's, something's got to be wrong. With you got you got to know that despite all the experts and all the people you're paying huge amounts of money to, that basically you're smarter than they are, which an average human being doesn't. Uh, uh, those that did. For the most part, names were Reagan, <laughs> Nixon. You know, when it gets right down to it, um, almost, Kennedy, for that go, matter. I would almost nuance that a bit. Yeah, yeah I would almost nuance. Reagan's a great example. Like, yeah, you, yeah, that all sounds good. Here's what we're going to do. Um, <laughs> but you know, you 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 go to Trump and you look at Trump v. Clinton, and Clinton had all the advisors and and really some of the great political professionals of our era. And Trump had God knows who. God knows who Trump. God, God, Trump had there, there's a whole Kirshner, Jared Kirshner. Yeah, I mean Trump had nobody. Maybe, maybe you know it's like like uh, like Trump told a friend of mine, "You're kind of a book guy. I'm kind of a by my gut guy." And I'm like, you know, I'm, it, I'm not surprised to find that Trump does not consider himself a book guy. I'm just I'm just surprised he would just say, "Yeah, I'm a kind of a gut guy." And and to some degree, I'm like. Every consultant he had told him not to do most of the things he did. And he, and he think what you will, he was president of the United States. And, and, and it's, it, it, I think, go ahead. Well, I, I think, and it's, it's worth noting that one of the best things that happened to him, and this is going to be totally, people are going to listen to this and they're going to say, what, what are you talking about? The Access Hollywood scandal. And you're like, that was the best thing where he's going on and going on uh, on recording and talking about touching women's nether regions and you get away with anything if you're a star. Because at that point, everyone wrote him off. He's going to lose. 
And so I, I think at some level in Trump's head, he'd already he never listened to anybody anyway. He just said, you know what, I'm just going to be myself. And if I lose, you know, I'm, I can't lose. But if I'm going to lose, I'm just going to be lose being me. And because of all that, he went into those debates just willing to do things that, frankly, no other candidate would ever do. And when he showed up with uh, the cavalcade of of Clinton, you know, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, how shall I put this politely, uh, criti- critical women. I mean, it's just it became something that was historic. I think you could go as far as accusers. Yeah. I, I think you could say they're accusers. Accusers, yeah. I think yeah, that, that was. Yeah, I knew I knew then that that okay here here you know here's someone you you think you're going to take it to the next level. This guy, even by Clinton standards, the next level is going to get scary. You know, it's yeah. um. Is that? But you know. Um, but I, but I'm going to. You keep yeah. keep it on. I, I I want I want to close out. Yeah. If we get to the closeout point, I just want to remind you, uh, since you are producing here, yeah. that I do want to do the the reading of the way he closes this. With don't the, don't uh, worry, we're almost car salesman part. We're almost there, and the reason why I want to say this is because where he before before we get to that, you brought up Dole. This is something where McGovern told me he still thought there was a shot of winning. I know for a fact Bob Dole, the week before the election, knew he had lost. And it was because I was standing with Bob and Elizabeth Dole on the Friday before the election on the Mississippi River at Woldenberg Park. And they were coming on right after the Senate candidate of whom I was working for, Woody Jenkins, who really looked like he was going to win. And he ends up losing by 5,788 votes out of 3 million cast. But Dole's up there and... I just, I turn, I've almost been shot by the Secret Service. It's a great story, but I, so I'm a little out of kilter, and I turn, and there's Bob and Elizabeth Dole, and he looks at me, and he looks at the deputy campaign manager, and he says, we're going to win it here in Louisiana, boys, are we? And he says, uh, and we said, oh, yes, Senator, we're going to win it, it's going to win it. And he looks at us, and he smiles, and he says, yeah, sure, right, you're going to win it. Uh-huh. And he starts joking about the fact that he's going to lose. <laughs> And, and then he goes on stage and becomes Bob Dole, Bob Dole, you serious. And I realized when I watched it, I said, if the Bob Dole who was making jokes and was just warm and fantastic had gone on stage and started joking about this and said, you know, I might lose this thing, but let's talk about America. Suddenly people out there would have been like, wait a second, what, who is this guy? This is great. It goes to your point. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. The, the famous thing about Bob Dole is someone asked him a question about how would you feel if, if your family was attacked and something like that. He said... He said, well, the bill on that, that's in, in uh, markup. <laughs> and, and everybody's like, what the hell, what the hell is markup? I mean, what, what is that? But, you know, it, uh, again, I would say this about those who would draw parallels between uh, the great Hunter book campaign trail 72 and, and 50 years later, this particular campaign trail is that it, it it's so different and yet it is so similar it's it's trying to get your message through the incredible clutter he is not a fan of how the media picks up and, and delivers that narrative and and it's interesting that you know how that gets gets dropped from those things like how it um you know he he quotes pool reports and and how bad they are and and it's just really, to me, it's it's int- the the it's interesting. This is where I thought the parallels would fall apart, and instead, uh, this is the, you know in, in the end days we'll say, but really the parallels are picked up. I would say the big difference for me, and you know the most dangerous word in politics is this time it will be different. <laughs> they say that they said that about Wall Street, right? That's the most dangerous words on Wall Street is this time it'll be different. Yeah. I think what's different is the acceleration of politics today. 
20 points in those days was before social media and other things is is crazy i mean i mean as hunter says i'll, I'll read for i'll read from 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 the volume a spectacular come from behind win capital c capital f capital b by the way he had his own punctuation a spectacular come from behind win is still possible on paper and given the right circumstances but the underlying realities of the campaign itself would seem to preclude this. So what he's saying is we we can't do it. Even if we could, the campaign would there. He also, by the way, talks about returning to the campaign after being in Aspen. Is, he's, he equates it to going back to the cancer ward. Um, and then, then he comes up, and, that, and that's when he makes that. He said, you know, Govern made, McGovern made some stupid mistakes. But in context, they were almost frivolous compared to the things Richard Nixon does every day of his life on purpose as a matter of policy and a perfect expression of everything he stands for. Jesus, where will it end? How low do you have to stoop in this country to be president? Now, that, that, that's one of the great quotes from this chapter, I mean, I'm a, but like, I, we're, but we're, I, yeah. I, <laughs> a lot lower than, than even Richard Nixon, and that's saying something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we 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 long for the days of Nixon is not not that's not good. the The other part of it that I think is is extremely parallel and interesting is that the campaign at this point, the campaign is for power, and it's manifest of the president versus now we're all counting House seats. But it's it's interesting that the the debate was so varied even a few chapters ago and now it's kind of like yeah amnesty or not amnesty you know uh, mcgovern I, was it mcgovern that was the three a's yeah uh, acid amnesty and abortion yeah yeah well all right we we've, we've kind of uh well <laughs> things go in circles you know at least we well you know amnesty now well if if you equate amnesty to the dreamers, yeah, you, you know, amnesty it's for, not, it's for not, if, if if you'll grant that conceit, and uh, well, uh, well uh, you know, uh, certain drugs, yeah, uh, I mean, the, LSD the, among them, but but, but that was the that was in the headline, yeah, but that, the criticism of McGovern, the reason they said acid, was because he supported, uh, he actually didn't support it, but he had actually given positive sort of statements towards legalization of marijuana which has been a major political issue right now so i mean it's, it's they, they use so acid. we're still debating we're still debating lsd and marijuana we're still debating that across the country and uh uh we have we have democratic control of the senate house and presidency and yet yet marijuana remains a schedule one narcotic and people still are debating of whether or not amnesty, if amnesty is for illegal immigrants, and and then uh, abortion, of course, with Roe, so I find it vaguely reassuring. It's it's been throughout. If you, if you take campaign trail seventy two, and you compare it to this year, there are all these all these great reassuring things, which is like. They were worried about the democracy fifty years ago, and they should have been, and we're worried about it now. Maybe we should be. But there was a repeat to it. I think the the unsettling thing is that we're still debating these things 50 years later, and, and maybe that's just the way it is. Maybe 50 years from now we'll still be debating these things. You would like to think that some of this would become settled.
somewhere along the way. Well, when it comes down to it, a lot of the issues that were there are the issues that are today. And frankly, the reason why we're going through this book is it speaks to us more and more each day in Campaign Trail 22 for Campaign Trail 72. And if, yeah. I will say this, one exception. Climate change in the 70s was about global cooling instead of global warming. That's true. And everybody thought there was going to be an and, ice and, age. Know, the next, yeah. we, were, we were terrified of the next ice age, not not the melting of the earth. So so at least we flipped something. <laughs> and uh, and I swore, I swore, I know we're running out of time. I can hear your voice wrapping us up. But I want to close with what he said in uh, the end of the chapter, which is the famous quote. This may be the year when we finally come face to face with ourselves. Finally, just lay back and say it that we're really just a nation of 220 million used car salesmen with all the money we need to buy guns and no qualms at all about killing anybody else in the world who tries to make us uncomfortable. Well, there's the indictment. I guess the trial, I guess we'll convene a jury soon, right? I, I think so. And the jury, of course, history always continues. Folks, you've been listening to Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories with your host, uh, Curtis Robinson, coming to us from North Carolina. Here's Julie Christopher Tidmer from New Orleans. And for those that are interested in this conversation and want to deal with a little bit more contemporary politics, feel free to go to thefoundersshow.com where Curtis came on this past week talking about the midterm elections, what was happening, and putting on his political commentator hat with a little bit of Hunter Thompson in between. Curtis, as always, a privilege, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.